Welcome back to the California Work Comp Report. It's Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. It's me, Corey Olson, here with Dr. John Alchemy to talk about Workers' Compensation 101 in order to get a succinct review of the most crucial components of California Workers' Compensation. Without any further ado, let's go to the show. Okay, we're back in the studio. How are you today, John? Hanging in there, Corey. A little hot here in Northern California, but getting by. Yeah, it's it's uh, kind of muggy here in, in Philadelphia, but it's beginning to cool down a little bit, mercifully. So, <laughs> yeah, so today we are doing a very, for, for many people, a very necessary uh, revisitation of an overview of, of workers' compensation, just a, just a bird's eye view of the concepts and some of the things that uh, every workers' comp physician and professional should know. And surprisingly, in many cases, sometimes don't know as well as they should. So that's why we're here with the overview. It's arguable that, you know, the entire work comp claim as it applies to California could be said to revolve around the impairment rating or the PR4 report. So, you know, in in line with our overview that we're doing today, it's important to know. um, And therefore, I asked John, what is uh, an impairment PR4 report? Well, um, in, in California, and we're going to be going through a, a, a bunch of real general questions, um, right. and these are probably like the greatest hits of California work comp as we'll work down the list. But um, when someone gets hurt, um, a claim's filed, um, it's, it's filed with the employer, and then the employer tells the insurance company, and then there's a doctor's first report, mm-hmm. and then there's some supplemental reports we call PR2 reports or rechecks or treatment reports. But then at the end, after the injured worker has been treated or is maximally improved, a summary of the entire claim has to be done and a rating has to be done um, that determines the loss of the claim and how much um, through the system is owed to the injured worker. So a PR4 report is just sort of it's a summary. Um, I keep telling people it's a tax return on mm-hmm. on a work comp injury. It's got everything you need. It tells you um, what's due, how much you know you you owe the work comp government, if you will, or the government owes the injured worker. So right. there's a there's a value called whole person impairment. But then it also um, outlines things like future care, permanent restrictions, what they need in the future, um, uh, something called apportionment. Um, and, and a couple other things, but for the most part, um, think of it just as the summary and the end of active treatment and the beginning of what we'll call future care, which we'll touch on in a bit. Sounds good. And so it sounds like a pretty official thing, but, uh, you know, as has been mentioned on the show many, many times, uh, I am personally not a work comp physician or professional, um, but even so... I can still just walk right up and sign a PR4 report and have it be valid, right? <laughs> well, um, if, if you have the credentials, you can. So um, this <laughs> the, is <a> question, common... <laughs> the question being, who can sign a PR4 report? Yeah, so anyone who um, can basically write a DFR or a PR2 can sign a PR4 report. Although if you search labor code, you will not see um, see this addressed one way or the other. But in practicality, um, if you are a licensed medical provider and have the you know training and um, uh, you know certifications to write a DFR or a PR two, you can certainly write a PR four. Um, mm-hmm. Some mid levels will have all their reports signed uh, by their supervising physician. Um, some will have ten percent signed. 
Um, but when it really comes down to it, if you're going to have your mid-level um, doing PR force, there's nothing wrong with it. But as the supervising physician, you have to be able to state or attest that, you know, that, that you're comfortable that your mid-level is capable and qualified to do the measurements, um, you know, required by the report. So, so it's, you know, not, not that big of a deal. Um, it's not that complicated, but just beware that, um, you know, some practices just choose to have the over, over, over signing doctor sign everything. Um, some just have the physician's assistant turn it in and, you know, 10% of them get signed. So, so it's, it's pretty straightforward. And some people just aren't quite sure, you know, cause it's, they're just not familiar with PR4 reports in general. So, you know, they have questions on all aspects of the report. Right. Right. So also if you're, if you're signing a PR4 report, make sure you're uh, reviewing it first, just in case you're Please, turning yes. anything with your name <laughs> on it and uh yeah. review all PR4 reports. That's basically <laughs> the point uh that, that we want to make. But uh um so there's there's a lot of language in, in workers' compensation, and it's really important to know what the terminology is because some of the words that we use day to day that are interchangeable with other words are very meaningful in workers' compensation and can signal certain things uh to insurance adjusters or attorneys um and one of the ones that we've talked about in former podcasts as well as blog posts is uh making the distinction between uh impairment versus disability and i was wondering if you could uh, help our listeners today make that distinction between those two john probably the most commonly confused terms um that and and some of the terms we use for work restrictions um those are probably the two most elusive and ambiguous terms we come across um mm. in in workers comp but impairment and disability are right up there so um impairment is defined again we use the AMA guides definitions here California uses the fifth there's totally um six right now but California stays with the fifth edition for now mm -hmm. um and impairment is defined as basically a functional loss of a body system so I can't see well um, my motor strength is weak um I have tingling in my hand um I can't feel well with my nerves or or I have a loss of um, one of my activities of daily living and the AMA guides has a short list of activities of daily living. You can find it on page four of the AMA guides, but there's 34 of these activities. Mm -hmm. These are called the activities of daily living. And if you can't do something, you have impairment on that list. So mm -hmm. if I can't sleep, my pain's waking me up or I can't drive my car as long as I used to, or I can only stand 30 minutes because of my injury. Um, those are all ADL um uh, limitations. Mm -hmm. And that's also an impairment. It's a measurable loss of your function. Yes. Yes. And uh, what is, <clears throat> and and how would you hold that against uh, disability? Does disability have special meaning in workers' compensation specifically or the AMA guides? Well, I think of disability is, is more of a relative term. Um, it's mm -hmm. the difference between what you want to do or what you used to be able to do and mm -hmm. what you can do now. So I always throw out this example that um, if, if I wanted to run uh, a six minute mile, not that I have, but if I wanted mm -hmm. to, um, and I trained or whatever, um, and the best I can do is eight minutes, yes. I'm, I'm technically disabled from running a six minute mile because I want to run the six minute mile, but I cannot. Um, so, so that's a relative term. Um, obviously, you know, I would, maybe I'd like to be able to jump 20 feet in the air, but, you know, I'm limited to, I don't know, 15 inches or something. One of like my that. 
one of my biggest wishes in life. Is, <laughs> is it, would, it would it would shake things up so much just for superhero act, right? Exactly, right. Um, but again, the difference between what you want to do and what you can do, and in general, um, you know, disability references your your function before you had the event. So before the event, you could walk. Um, you know, two hours uninterrupted. And after the event, you can walk 30 uh, minutes. So, so you have some disability there. Now, just to make it a little bit more confusing, mm -hmm. there's also something called permanent disability. And, and I've never really been able to get anything out of people as to what disability does the work comp system really talk about? Does it talk about the disability, the difference between what I want to do or what I can do? Mm. Or is it the administrative value that's calculated um, off the impairment in the settlement? Mm -hmm. And and um, people kind of ham and haw about this, and I don't know that they've really thought about it that much. But, but for the most part, when we as doctors talk about disability, we're talking about disability between what they could do and what they can do now. And, and when we talk about things like apportionment, um, you're really talking about the administrative disability. And that is the result of calculating a formulaic value based on an impairment value, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. Right, right. So when you're using specifically the term uh, impairment, it should always be as a very uh in insanely specific thing that you're talking about versus disability which sounds like it can be used more vaguely but you never want to refer you never want to call it a uh uh workers comp disability report for example because it's an important no. report right no you, you yeah. don't and yeah and, and just another way to think about it too i mean impairment is something that um, I, as a physician, can walk in the room, I can elicit um, a, a functional history about it in terms of, you know, minutes and endurance and rate of uh, activity of daily living, or I can or I can see it or feel it, um, such as a loss of range of motion in a shoulder or weakness in a nerve root testing. So, so it's a measurable loss for the most part. Um, and disability is more of a report of a change in function or loss of function. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So... <clears throat> Speaking of which, um, a very important point at determining the uh, impairment of the injury, we have maximal medical improvement or something that we've referred to on the show many times as, uh, and that is commonly referred to as MMI. What is maximal medical improvement? You know, I get this question over and over again, and um I'm happy to keep talking about it because <laughs> yeah, as long as people are asking, you're going to, you're going to have an answer for them. Right. The, the short yeah. answer, the short answer is, is that it means that the injured worker has recovered as best they can and they're not going to get any better. And they're probably not going to get better for the next 12 months without any significant improvement. Mm. Um, how that's determined um, can be based on a couple of things. But for instance, um, you know, your arm gets lacerated, you put some stitches in, um, the stitches, you know, have to be in there for 10 days. Um, you take them out, you put some strips on, strips fall off in another you know, 10 days, and you're left with a scar, um, and your skin is closed, and, you know, you're basically healed. So that scar or that injury or that laceration is at maximal medical improvement. Yes. Um, where it gets a little more complicated is someone has, you know, like a back surgery, a fusion, um, 
And, you know, when do they become maximally medically improved? And when I'm teaching the subject or lecturing on it, I say, you know, there, there are a couple of things that you can use to track um, MMI status, and they're really not that complicated. What you're really looking for are, you know, a couple of dimensions of recovery. The first one is obviously the patient's report. Um, my pain went from a five to a four. Um, or I could walk 15 minutes, now I can walk 30. I mean, that's someone who is getting better. Um, the other thing you can look at is measurable um, loss. So my range of motion in my lumbar spine inflection was 30 degrees, um, you know, four, four weeks ago. And uh, today it's up to 60. So I have some measurable improvement in my range of motion. So I might say in that scenario, my pain was four was four out of 10, you know, four weeks ago. Today, it's four out of 10, but my range of motion has improved. So in that dimension, I'm not MMI, I'm still getting better. And the other question is, well, how much time do you need between evaluations to make a determination if someone is actively improving? And probably the best answer I can give is 45 days, because that's what we're required to do a recheck on an active open work comp claim, no longer than 45 days. So if you're not making those gains um, uh, every 45 days, then you can start thinking about, is this case getting close to MMI? Now, to make everyone's life easy, we have created at RateFast um, an MMI tool calculator to help to support you um, in making these determinations on, is my patient MMI? And all you need to do is to go to ratefastmmi.com, uh, answer a few questions, hit calculate, and it's going to tell you exactly what the status is on your claim, what you need to do next, and give you an estimate on how long it's going to be for MMI. And I will say, if you haven't been with a calculator before, it can be shocking because the calculator has has real-time work comp uh, built into it. Yeah. Right. So people say, MMI in 18 months, is this possible? And the answer is, oh, yes, it's very possible <laughs> because... Yes. Utilization review is never really done in five days, or sometimes your patient doesn't show up and has to be rescheduled a month later, or they had COVID, or they were in a car accident, or they had to go attend a sick family member. So all the averages of those um, challenges, shall we say, are built into the calculator. So when the calculator tells you it's going to be 18 months, it's going to be 18 months and probably 18 months on a good day. Right, right. So, yeah. And I mean, the 45 day gap, I mean, it, it's the body doesn't really have a way of of reco uh, recovering in these gigantic steps at a time like it's uh it's not like you'll wait 45 days nothing will change and then on day 46 your arm will regrow or whatever it is uh it you know it's uh it will uh 45 days is a is a nice amount of time to see how the body recovers over time and uh just uh, my my little input cuz i feel like i have to say this every time we talk about mmi uh my my layman's term for understanding what MMI is is you know as good as you're gonna get after yeah. after the you know for for healing and everything so right and and, and I'm gonna toss in here because this is really really important that um, MMI can also be reached when a patient starts to decline for their treatment like maybe they're not ready for a surgery that's offered to them mm -hmm. or they don't like medications or um, you know, they like physical therapy, but they don't want to try acupuncture or chiropractic. So it can also occur when the individual has sort of timed out on what they want to do. And then probably the, the third most common scenario 
is that the insurance company has denied further treatment. So in this scenario, the, the doctor and the injured worker have decided, yep, we want to do a surgery, but utilization review will not approve it. So in that situation, um, if you don't think they're going to get much better without a surgery, call them MMI. And then there's actually a fourth scenario where the claim is abandoned by the injured worker. So in that situation, we take the last PR2 and um, we run that through RateFast and you get your admin PR4. So the PR4, again, is there to be written at maximal medical improvement. If the patient's missing an action, um, you can certainly generate that and um, the patient can always come back and see you under future care. And we'll talk about future care in a bit. So the next uh, thing we have to talk about here is the whole person impairment or WPI. And um, this is something that's measured in percentages. So the question that I ask is, what is a percent of whole person impairment? Or, you know, if, if, if necessary, what is whole person impairment? <laughs> well, whole person impairment, um, unsurprisingly, is a range of zero to 100%. So 100% means you are a whole person, ah, which is good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's so variable the, the for me zero, from day to day. Yeah. yeah. The, the zero means no impairment, as the, as the WPI um, implies, and 100 means a lot of impairment. And the book defines 100% as someone approaching death. So think of it about this way, that a 0% whole person impairment basically means that you have no measurable loss, according to the AMA guides, and the guides has chapters and pictures and all kinds of things with impairment described in them. But in addition to having um, no measurable loss in the chapter, you also cannot have any loss of your activities of daily living. Mm. And this is where a lot of people get confused and they say, well, but there's no measurable loss. But remember earlier on, I said that ADLs count as um, as uh, as impairment and they yes. certainly do. Yeah. So you cannot have a loss of activities of daily living and have someone sign off on the report that you're zero percent. And I really, really wish if they only put one question, Corey, in the um, QME state test, it mm -hmm. would be this one. Yeah. Can a patient with loss of activities of daily living be given a zero percent whole person impairment? True or false? And the answer and is false. They can't. Yes. As we've yeah. talked about, uh, uh, several episodes we've, we've, I, we went on a bit of a wpi run a couple episodes ago um where we expanded greatly you know anything that you want to learn from this overview that that you want to get to know a lot more about wpi just go back a couple episodes uh -huh. Now, the other thing I'm going to say, too, is that each body part has an upper limit in the uh, AMA guides. Of course they do. So, for instance, um, if you went into the spine chapter, chapter 15, and calculated someone's impairment, everything wrong with your lumbar spine that could go wrong. It, it's, it's compressed at every level. It has transverse and posterior processes fractured at every level. None of the nerve roots work for sensory. You're totally flaccid. You're paralyzed um, with all of the nerves. You can't move your spine one degree. If you went through the AMA guides and calculated the worst case scenario for a lumbar spine, or essentially um, functionally amputating, I think is a good term, the mm. lumbar spine, you would come out to 96% whole person impairment. Um, and, and the reason I bring that up is that each body part actually has an upper limit or what I call an upper bound. And yes. so for instance, a shoulder is 54% whole person impairment and a toe is 5% whole person impairment. So and this comes in, this is really important when you're reviewing impairment with um, patients or injured workers. And this is whether you're an attorney, 
um, an insurance adjuster talking to an unrepresented injured worker, um, and most importantly, a primary treater, the patients sometimes have this concept that, you know, oh, you know, for some reason, I need to be 100% disabled because, you know, my shoulder, you know, can't do right. anything. Well, right. when you, yeah. So when you explain to them that, well, it's really, you know, 54% is the upper WPI, you need to kind of reset their expectations and educate them on what the scale actually is. Um, the, the, because the, once, yeah. The operative word be, or the operative uh, phrase in there being whole person impairment, you know. If That's it, right. It's a, that would be yeah. 100% shoulder impairment. Well, that shoulder impairment, it's not a real thing in the, what we're talking about, but you know, it's 100% of your shoulder, but it's, however many percent of your whole person that's being impaired. So. Yeah, and, and there, there are like lower denominations of impairment that we don't need to get into here. But for instance, digits are, you know, initially reported at digit impairment levels, and then it's mm. converted to a hand impairment, and then an upper extremity impairment, and then a whole person impairment. So there's a lot of, you know, inner workings and conversions that happen. But, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, the PR4 report delivers a, a final whole person impairment. Yes. Yeah. So now we have something that is probably one of the more uh, advanced parts of this already advanced idea is uh, app apportionment. And uh, I'm not even going to make a little beginning intro sentence here because I still am wrapping my mind around apportionment, which is good. I'm not a work comp professional. So, John, can you uh, can you refresh for us? What is apportionment? Yes. Uh, apportionment is one of these great failings, I think, of of the work comp system of the the state of the labor code. And it was probably like the the worst marketing ever, um, <laughs> um, you, you know, that you can imagine. And, and the reason I say these things is because it's so poorly understood and it's so poorly described as to how it works. And just as soon as you kind of think you know what apportionment is, you know, there's some situation where you're wrong, or mm -hmm. the judge doesn't agree with it, or yes. the judge simply says, you know, this is not consistent with apportionment. But unfortunately, the judges never say why. Uh, right. So, right. so if you're a judge, and you're listening to this podcast, if you're going to say that the apportionment is not consistent with the law, um, please write down why. So, so the doctor has something to look at and something to address other than, you know, go back to the blank drawing board and try again. I'm not going to tell you exactly why I said it wasn't, you know, consistent with the law, but it's just not consistent. And, you know, that's not super helpful. So again, please, if you're a judge and you're going to say something is not consistent with the law and apportionment, write down just a couple sentences as to why that is. And I think it'd be really helpful and to move things along. You okay. There's, 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 there's it's a plea, Corey. There's, plea. Yeah, yeah, and there's got to be, you know what? There's got to be people, physicians out there that are like me who will, you know, see something that doesn't have a great explanation for a judge, and then dedicate a bit of time to getting in contact with everybody that could possibly be in contact with that judge to figure out what it was. Uh, and uh, you know, there's some very persistent people out there. Um, so to save everybody's time, yeah, just give a nice little explanation for why. Uh, yeah, give us something to work on. That's all I'm saying. That's right, I'm saying. right. Um, okay, but but apportionment. So I'm going to get back to that. So apportionment basically means that the employer pays for the uh, permanent disability that they caused. 
And it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. um, so, and this was all rewritten back in 2005. And, and basically what it means is that, um, for instance, like, let's say I had a pre-existing back injury and it was from a car accident, um, but I had mild back pain and I could do my job. Yeah. And I, and I reported my ADLs and my back pain consistent with about a three out of 10, which we'll call mild pain. Um, and then I lift something heavy at work. My pain gets worse and um, it never gets back to the baseline. So I have um, an aggravation of my back condition. Mm -hmm. And now my ADLs and my pain report is a five. So, so basically the difference between the disability I had at a three out of 10 pain and the disability that I have at a five out of 10 pain, that is the industrial apportionment. So it's the, it's the space of disability that is from the three to the five out of 10 pain, if you're following me. Right, so, right. It's that, it's, it's mm -hmm. that, I, I think about it as a pie chart. Yes. Yeah. I think it, that's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, and, and where it gets really complicated is I had a pre-existing back injury. I got hurt at work. Um, and then I got into a, a non-industrial car accident and, you know, then I, you know, got hurt at my other job um lifting and now you know you have four or five things in the mix for apportionment so it can get really confusing but in order to keep it really simple uh, i think for the stakeholders and for the the pr4 report it's always best just to talk about things in terms of you know the the visual analog scale for for pain the zero to ten and most importantly about the adls so if you can give the reader something to kind of follow like hey they could walk for an hour and then they had their work injury and they got to MMI and now they can walk for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to base my apportionment of 50% on this. Right. Um, and that's pretty straightforward. Where it gets a little harder are things like arthritis. You've got multi-levels of arthritis. Each level, you know, it is, has a different severity. Um, and, you know, the bad news is it can be very confusing. The good news is RateFast handles all of that um, for our clients. So <laughs> you don't have to. But we are we are always concept. Yeah, we are always the good news that is the if there is no other uh there's bad news but the good news we are always the but the good news is if there's none other. So um so we have uh so we've covered so we've covered apportionment um and these are all things that happen at the end of a, a apportionment uh maximum maximum medical improvement all of these things kind of indicate the closing of a claim or indicate that a, a claim the the close of a claim is approaching and things like that um and i you know i fell into the blender at work um and you know my impairment rating was written and everything like that and it was accepted and the payout happened and everything and i'm my body is a is is a smoothie now um but now that that's been taken care of uh there uh there's no need for such a thing called future care is there or is there a need for future care and uh if well, there is what is future care well future care is something that's put into place and it's basically a stopgap or a safety net if you will to make sure that the injured worker is taken care of 
after they've reached their maximal improvement. So um, most commonly, they have a medication dependence. I have to, you know, take ibuprofen in order to sleep well or to do my activities of daily living. Mm -hmm. um, or when my back flares up, um, you know, whether I'm doing something at work or at home, I have an industrial injury and that gets flared and I'm going to need some physical therapy. Or um, the doctor said, I would need a knee replacement in 10 years. Um, you know, that's the future care. So the, 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 the laws of the labor code say that the work comp system has to pay to um, alleviate and or cure the symptoms um, and residuals of an industrial condition. So just because you're made MMI um, doesn't mean that you're kicked to the curb. And this is probably one of the greatest misnomers and understandings of injured workers yes. that need education. They need to understand that, yes, you will be given future care. Yes, you can continue with your treatment. Um, but, you know, it depends how you settle your claim because there's a couple ways to settle work comp claims once this PR4 report is written. You can do something, um, uh, you know, where you get paid for your injury, but your future care remains intact and the insurance company will continue to pay for it. There's also something called the compromise and release where you're going to be paid for your injury but they're also going to give you additional money up front and they will no longer be responsible for any treatment in the future. And this is yes. understood. It's called a compromise and release. And yes. the release means that they are released from liability and you can take your money and you can go get treatment. However, whenever you want, no utilization review, you know, no strings attached. Now, the only problem is you better make sure that that money is adequate to cover the costs of fee for service medicine, because right. You know, the, the costs that they get in a network through an insurance company are very different than the costs if you just walk in off the street and say, I want a back surgery. Yeah, that's and that's uh, we, we we did a whole episode on this as well, actually, a couple mm -hmm. uh, a couple months ago, less than a year. I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, it uh, yeah, be very careful when you when you see that amount and, uh, you know, just just do a little calculation in your head if not on paper or not speaking to somebody who who will help you kind of uh come to that decision and also I, I your your doctor's not legally allowed to tell you whether it's a good idea to make that decision but somebody you know you could talk to someone in your family or or you know somebody like that just to make sure that you know there's a lot of money that's offered to you up front uh but but it's something that you want to consider just in case it's doesn't cover the amount that you know would be required to give you the care that um staying with your uh claim would yeah so. or, or i just tell them look go to the pharmacy ask them what 30 days of um cash pay for ibuprofen is and multiply that by 20 years that's you know? it that's it or, yes or PT, so. you know go go figure it out um yes. it's, it's not that difficult to do now, the, the, I think the bigger question here, Corey, is who does not need future care? The majority of cases, I would say 95% will require some future care. So these are people that still have ongoing pain problems. Maybe they're going to need some durable medical equipment like splints replaced. Maybe they're going to need hearing aids replaced. Maybe they're going to need annual hearing tests. Maybe they're going to need blood work um, to monitor their medication safety for their kidney function, you know, for all the ibuprofen they're taking blah, blah, blah. So, you know, any pain, any dependence on medication, any, any um, probable need for surgery in the future, injections, PT, you know, all of that, all those cases get future care. Mm -hmm. um, so the bigger case, the bigger question is who does not need the future care? And, and this is pretty specific here. So there cannot be any or should not be any residual pain. 
Um, there shouldn't be any symptoms. There should be no dependence on medication. They should not require any durable medical equipment and um, uh, no need for further surgery. And I usually, any patient that has a significant surgery like a hernia repair or um, a meniscal surgery on their knee, you know, all these people are probably going to need another surgery in the future because that knee is going to get progressive arthritis. Eventually it'll go and get a total knee at some point, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully later than sooner. And um, a hernia repair could fail. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you want to keep all this in mind when you're writing up, um, you know, the, the future care. Um, things that don't require uh, future care, like earlier, like was my arm uh, laceration. So my arm sutured, it's healed. The wound isn't going to fall open. My arm is not going to fall off. I'm not having any pain. I haven't had any sensory loss. You know, I'm pretty much fine. Um, those don't really need any future care. And I tell the patients that. And I say, look, uh, unless there's something totally unforeseen here, I have, you know, no reason to expect you're going to need care. And these patients usually know who they are. They, I mean, they don't want to come in anymore because they're feeling well. They're at full duty. They're not taking any medications. And most of the time, you know, when you identify these people properly, they're just like, yeah, of course. Yeah, I totally agree. I won't need any future care. And that's fine. Those are the people that you want to, um, that you want to outline. I'm not anticipating anything, but be careful because it's just like a 0% whole person impairment report. You know, it's a very specific, very defined group of patients and patients with no future care, same thing, very defined, very specific um, requirements to walk out of that claim with no future care. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> so we have functional limitations which are also known as or which interchangeably referred to as you know workplace restrictions and um these are things that happen after an injury where the worker is actually able to return to work and sometimes you know you'll, you'll return with your injury so you you can only return to however much duty compared to what you were doing before say you you hurt your back now you can only do seated work etc etc but before i give a very uh, uh unintelligible rambling of what it is could you tell us more about uh, uh functional limitations and, and workplace restrictions john yeah so um i think probably at the same level of of significance as the whole person impairment the functional limitations are kind of the sleeper in the report um because you know, once someone becomes permanent and stationary, their functional limitations are permanent. And once functional limitations are permanent, an employer can legally release them from employment. And I don't think that the injured workers always understand this. And I don't think that we as um, doctors do very good jobs in counseling injured workers in this aspect of the impairment report. Um, technically, you can't be fired while you're hurt or your work comp claim is open. Um, because that could be seen as uh, retaliation. I mean, they have to hold your job, you know, all right. of these things. But um, but once, you know, you have some type of functional limitation, like no lifting over 50 pounds, and maybe you're a mason, you know, and you have to lift, you know, 75 to 100 pounds routinely. Right. That's not that that's not really an accommodation um, that can be made for a mason and still maintain their usual and customary work. Yeah, it makes things a little complicated. <laughs> Yeah, and, and things get really blurry um, because once you have um, a functional limitation, your employer really has to um, uh, 
have some type of engagement about the return to work process. And that's required. That's um, like an Americans with Disability Act. And you have to talk about, um, you know, what what is a reasonable accommodation? You know, if I can't lift something, can I put it on a hand truck and pull it? You know, those kind of things. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and just to be clear, you know, employers really do have to deal with the attorneys. This is absolutely part of the work comp claim. You're going to come across some employers that claim, oh, this is a human resource. This isn't work comp. Absolutely not true. Um, you know, permanent work restrictions are totally part of the accommodation process. It's a work comp process. Right. Um, and, you know, the employers need to be aware of this. And employers need to be aware that the if they're represented, that attorney um, is going to need to be there to help them navigate the system. Because, you know, the employers have attorneys all over the place. And if yeah. the injured worker has one, it's really only fair that they're able to bring in their attorney to help them understand because this is their job on the line. So you have to be really careful um, of these of these employers that claim, oh, well, it's not our practice, you know, to, to let you have, you know, your your attorney with you at the accommodation process. And you you routinely ask them, oh, is that a written policy that you have? Yeah. Well, no, we can't write it down because it's illegal, but it's, it's illegal. not a practice. <laughs> yeah, right, right, like, right. Okay, well, that really makes a lot of sense. You know, um, I might want to check my wallet before I leave the room. Right, but, yeah, you know, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, so anyway, we're getting a little off track, but the fact is that, that, that there's big money on the table and there's long-term employment issues based on these functional limitations. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that everybody's like, if, if you're opening a business of any kind or doing anything like that, you know, it's, it's, there are many factors that are just going to happen that aren't, you know, meant to please the, you know, the, the CEO or the owner of the business and stuff like that. And I mean, work comp, uh, exists regardless of the feelings of anybody in the, in the, you know, process and, and yeah. It's something that, you know, with the, I don't know, I don't know about the legality of it all, but, you know, knowing more about the work comp process than the injured worker who's trying to figure it out themselves can, can have, you know, can, can give people the degree of like wiggle room to make people do things that might not be in their best interest. And I, I don't know. So it's, it's, it's good to have the most knowledge that you possibly can about the work comp system if you're an injured worker, you know, lest you get overwhelmed by the amount of kind of money and resources that yeah. the opposing yeah. side has. So, yeah. And, um, and I'm not, and, and also I don't want any, any of the listeners to think, you know, that, that I'm down on all the HR people in the interactive process, because obviously there are good employers who do it correctly, but you know, there are also not good employers that right. do this incorrectly. Um, right. And, you know, and that these are the people that, you know, need to be called out early. Um, otherwise, it just creates litigation and more problems. And, you know, it just it's unending. So and anyway, have, employers, yeah, yeah <laughs> let the attorney in to help them settle their claim. Thank you. you right. Know, and we have a we have a reputation on this show of, of uh, uh, calling out everybody. So uh, we've called out ourselves many <laughs> times. So. Um, all right. So. John, does that take care of? Because that was does not. All right, Corey. So to move on here, um, just a couple of quick quick comments on on functional limitations. Notice I call them functional limitations. Most people call them restrictions. It's the same thing as the confusion between impairment and disability. Mm. But um, basically, all the things I'm going to name out three 
um, elements of functional limitations. And, and if you can follow and learn these three things, you're never going to have any confusion. You're going to be able to talk to anyone who has questions about um, functional limitations, return to work, and it's all going to make sense. And you're going to appear very smart. Um, these, these three subsets um, have been taken out of an AMA Guides um, companion book where I think they're very nicely laid out. And there are three components of uh, functional limitations. The first one is restriction. The second one is called medical capacity. And then the third one's called symptom intolerance. And we'll talk about them in order. Mm -hmm. um, a work restriction is, is a functional limitation that's placed on someone to prevent uh, major health and safety um, protection to an injured worker and or his or her coworkers or people around them. And these are exceedingly rare. Um, I maybe write these three times a year, maybe one time a year. And it's basically uh, an example is someone who has a seizure disorder and you write down, you shouldn't be driving. And this is assuming the seizure disorder is not controlled, that you know, DMV has taken their license and obviously they shouldn't drive. If they have a seizure, they'll have an accident, they'll kill themselves and or kill anyone else on the road or whoever is in the car with them. Not a great so, risk to take, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, a, another example that's a little more subtle is a roofer who works at height with a skill saw, um, and they have a shoulder problem and the shoulder problem after surgery, um, got some neuropraxia because when their arm was under arthroscopy, the brachial plexus got stretched and caused, um, some permanent weakness in the hand. So this guy, um, drops a skill saw once in a while. Well, you don't want him dropping skill saw 20 feet down onto a coworker's head who's, you know, trying to get some bundles of shingles up to the roof. So that would be a restriction for that individual. And again, restrictions um, uh, are contextual, meaning if I have to drive as part of my job, I would be restricted from driving if I have a seizure disorder. If I have to work at heights with power, power tools that can fall on other people, that would be a restriction. Now, obviously, if my job is to be a receptionist and, you know, check people into a clinic and type on a computer, um, my seizure disorder would not be a restriction because I'm not going to hurt anyone if I have a seizure in my chair. Um, mm -hmm. I might fall to the ground, but, you know, I'm not going to crash into anyone. Right. Or, or likewise, if I'm a carpenter and, you know, I'm working with a saw at ground, ground level, um, you know, it may not be as risky as if I'm doing it 20 feet in the air with five people below me. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Just suspended yeah. by a harness in a, yeah. <laughs> in a <laughs> delay style right this saw right. is too yeah 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 yeah, uh -huh. yeah. on so, a neil, so neil pert uh drum <laughs> like rotating drum yeah anyway <laughs> sorry <laughs> all right medical capacity we're going to keep it together Corey. we're going to make yes, it yeah, yeah. yes the, the imagination so. gets gets wild <laughs> medical capacity so um this is where there's a clear underlying medical condition that's going to prevent an activity and the most common um example i give when i give this lecture is um, someone with a, a shoulder capsulitis and that means that the tissue or the capsule of the shoulder gets tight and it gets thick and it, it like mechanically limits you from actually lifting your shoulder at or above shoulder level height. And you can see it on MRI, you're going to see some thickening of the capsule. 
Um, you're going to do the physical exam. They're going to lift their arm. It's going to be limited. And then you're going to lift their arm with them. And you're going to feel like a tight rubber band end point. So um, you can feel it. You can see it. It can be reproducible. And that's a medical capacity. And, and in that limitation, you would give them a functional limitation of no work at or above shoulder level work because of a medical capacity issue. And that yes. is adhesive shoulder capsulitis. So that's the um, that's the second uh, type of functional limitation. And those are probably written about, uh, I would say, 15 to 25 percent of the time mm -hmm. you're going to be writing, you know, functional limitations based on uh, medical capacity. And notice that I keep calling these functional limitations because that's really what they are. They're not work restrictions um, yes. because, like I said, work restriction means something very specific and yes. and and. Um, this is not that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll do the, the, the work restriction podcast next. So yes, there yeah, you go. That, those, those, deserve, those can get a podcast worth of material on their own. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, last, so lastly, let's talk about symptom intolerance. This is by far the lion's share of um, functional limitations. And this just means that someone has uh, a medical condition that generates pain or symptoms beyond um, what they're able to tolerate or what they could tolerate before they were hurt. So for instance, I might have a normal physical exam, maybe my x-ray is normal. Um, and you know, the, and it's a knee injury. So I have a normal knee exam, range of motion is strong, ligaments are all stable. Um, you know, I can walk um, around the exam room. Um, you know, distal leg is all neurovascularly intact. I don't use a brace or anything like that. Um, but I simply cannot stand on my knee eight hours. At about four hours, it becomes intolerably painful, um, soft tissue injury, whatever you want to call it. Um, but there's nothing really on MRI. There's no significant arthritis on the x-ray. Um, and they just can't do it. And so these individuals fall into symptom intolerance because the symptoms make the activities intolerable. It's pretty straightforward. Um, but as you can imagine, um, you know, this is a common cause of, of functional limitation. And sometimes you have, you know, you have, you have them in tandem with another reason like medical capacity. Um, so, so they can be used together. But I guess what I'm getting at here is that if you're going to write up some limitations for an individual, and if you have to give them some functional limitations, it's always nice to throw in the discussion, in the discussion why. You know, I'm doing this because of symptom intolerance. I'm doing this because of medical capacity. There's a torn rotator cuff and they have weakness, so they can't lift more than 25 pounds, you know, something like that. But um, it, it helps it helps the reader understand why and gives context to the um, functional limitation that you're giving them. And, and in turn, minimizes these letters that you get from the adjusters, attorneys, et cetera. So um, the clearer you can be about that, the... Um, uh, the less questions you're going to get. And that's always a good thing on a PR4 report. Right, right. Uh, it, it helps to be able to kind of segment these things into their own categories so that yeah. it's just unambiguous. You know, the more that you can categorize, uh, we is another thing that we have a podcast episode about is, you know, maintaining a consistent sort of language with the people that you're working with. Or, or knowing their language or using RateFast to translate uh, into, you know, the terminology that, that each party uses that will help them understand what you're trying to convey in order to save you time, in order to save the, 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 the injured worker, you know, time and, and everything and 
it saves the employer time, it saves everybody time. So, you know, the, the more that you can sort of categorize and get into this sort of terminology, the better that it's going to be for everybody. So, all right, John, well, we've, we've uh, taken an overview of the, you know, the very crucial parts of workers' compensation. We've, we've talked about, you know, the PR4 report, who can sign it. We've talked about impairment versus disability. Um, we've talked about MMI or maximal medical improvement. We've talked about the whole person impairment. We've talked about apportionment. We've talked about future care. And we've talked about functional limitations and workplace restrictions. And, you know, I feel like anybody walking out of here listening to this today is going to have a much better idea um, if they didn't know about any of these things going into it. And uh, and if is there anything else that you'd like to uh, uh, touch on about these kind of a bird's eye view of concepts before we go today? I, I think the listeners should realize that these questions and these things I've, I've, I've gone over here today um, are are difficult to grasp and to put into practice. Um, there's a lot of moving parts um, to workers' comp, particularly when you're trying to wind it down and get it packaged for settlement um, to avoid getting the attorneys and the QMEs and the AMEs, um, you know, involved. But, um, you know, if, if you can grasp these things and practice them, it will pay dividends to you. And I will also say I've run into people that have been doing work comp for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 25 years, as long as myself. And um, and they come up to me after these talks and say, you know what, I never really knew that about, you know, work restrictions or I never knew that about impairment. You know, thank you. And these are the kind of things that, um, you know, you have to actively educate yourself on if you're going to be well-rounded and effective in closing work comp claims. So um, if there's something here that you thought you knew or didn't know, do not feel bad. Um, you know, that's why we have these podcasts. We right. want everyone to get up to speed and make sure we're all using the same language. Thanks again, John. Thanks, Corey. Catch up later. Thanks for listening. For a review of California work comp in a written form, visit our blog at blog.rate-fast.com and give RateFast Workers' Compensation Impairment Report writing service a try at rate-fast.com. We write your impairment reports for you.